Good day, everybody. I'm Mitchell Jolly, and I'm here with Keith Thompson and Justin Owens. It's January 26, 2021, and this is Theology in the Dirt. We want to attempt to practice our theology in our homes, our lives, public square of our city, and our world. We're glad you're with us today. What's going on, men? How are you doing? And doing well, doing well, enjoying some nice uh, warm weather in January. I know, it's Hard. supposed to be 70 today. Yeah, it's really nice out there. It's glory. unbelievable. Yeah, glory to God. Amen. I, I would. Uh, I know that's going to bode poorly for bugs in the spring because <laughs> yeah. those uh, helicopter mosquitoes are not going to be killed off with cold weather. However, I'm enjoying mm-hmm. today. I have on shorts. My <laughs> that's dad a good was, day. Yeah, short-legged pants. Is how my dad will say. All right, we're going to start off our time. We have a couple of questions we want to address. We were emailed um, theologyinthedirt at gmail.com. If you have questions, people can email us. We'll take them and we'll make them an entire episode. So I want to be able to address questions people have. So we're going to hit those. But before we do, we need a sports hot take for the day. Sometimes things are heavy. I think our personalities lend themselves to diving into deeper stuff and heavier stuff. And it's good for my soul to be light every now and then. So, uh, Justin, we'll start with you. Give us a sports hot take for the day. So I am a Tennessee Volunteers uh, fan. Yep, go ahead and laugh. Um, And we have not had great success uh, in much over the last few years. Uh, But we did hire an awesome athletic director. So maybe things can start to turn around. I don't want to be too hopeful. Danny White. Danny White came from UCF. Is he, he the that program around? Is he the Danny White that was a lineman? He's a guard for the Dallas Cowboys in the seventies. You'd have a Danny White poster. Mm. That's how old I am. I don't da- think so. Dallas Cowboys, not that Danny White. This guy seems like he's probably younger than that. Wait, I was could Danny, be wrong. Was Danny White the quarterback or the lineman? Hold on, totally blanking. There's a Danny White that played for the Dallas Cowboys. If you know the answer to that question, please email that <laughs> as well because now I'm totally questioning my knowledge of Danny White. I do not know. But I do know that Classic Tennessee, we had a good men's basketball team, and they've started to choke. So, yeah. Mm. That's no bueno. That's my hot take. That's your hot take. Keith, you got a sports hot take for us? No, man, just excited to watch the Super Bowl. I think it's going to be a great classic showdown. But I, I couldn't have drawn up a better scenario in my mind just for what I like to watch happen. I love to see the old guy get a shot to take down the young guy. That's not a, that has nothing to do with either one of their abilities or character. It's like as a fifty-one-year-old, I'm pulling for the old guy. Pull for the old pulling guy. Pulling for the old guy. Yeah. How old is Tom Brady? Forty-three. I think. Gosh, I think so yeah. And he's still got a cannon for an arm. He's yeah. still playing well. No need to retire. Yeah. He's doing well. I mean, I don't know how you could. It'd be hard to build a case for a guy who made, who took a brand new team to the Super Bowl to say he's done. Right. I don't care if he's seventy. Right. He's yeah. just had a great season. Keep playing. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, I think I have two kind of two hot takes. One, this isn't really so hot. Uh, I think the Falcons draft a quarterback at number four, and and I, I think uh, uh, you're going to get a guy who's going to sit for a couple of years and have a chance to be be the guy in a couple of years when, when Matt Ryan's massive contract is over. So I think that's going to happen. Here's my second hot take. I think Will Muschamp is coaching defensive backs at Georgia wow. in spring and fall. Is that due to intelligence or is it just your gut? Um, a little intel, okay. but, but I think he has had two head coaching gigs that ended not on his terms. Right. Um, he may just simply not be a head coach, and that's okay. 
he may need a year off. I think uh, twelve twelve and a half million was South Carolina's payout to send him packing. I wish somebody would fire me and give me twelve and a half million dollars. I would be completely okay with that. So I think he can come in on their dime, be some kind of assistant, get a year, kind of recharge, then mm. get one more head coaching mm. gig. But I'd love to see Will coaching at Georgia. Uh, I think it'd be fantastic. So it's not going to be defensive coordinator. Yeah, you know we got that, but I think we got a shot. We'll see. We'll see. All right, guys. Um, here we go. We got two questions. Um, the first question is this: um, if, if I'm gonna put a title on top of it, it would be: Is there a distinction between nationalism and patriotism, particularly Christian nationalism? But let me just read the question as it came in, especially since last Wednesday's fun at the Capitol. That's interesting. Fun at the Capitol. And I know that's very sarcastic. I've had uh, heard some people trying to differentiate between Christian nationalism and Christian patriotism. What is your take on that? Is it a legitimate distinction or a deflection away from the negative aspects of nationalism? It's mm. a good question. Yeah. It's a good question. Yeah, I, I, when I hear that question, I think about terms and, and terminology and definitions and this this whole conversation as I was thinking through our, our topics today and even trying to communicate with people in general, it is nearly impossible to have a conversation now because it feels like every other word in the sentence needs to be defined. Our language and buzzwords are so inflammatory that you can say Christian nationalist and you may be meaning something completely different than what someone else may understand as Christian nationalism or uh, not to say that Christian nationalism can have a positive connotation, but um, anyway, so I think I think we ought to spend a little bit of time defining what we mean by Christian nationalism because I think I know what that person means by Christian nationalism. Uh, Christian nationalism to some is if you're a Christian nationalist, you are the God that will storm the Capitol with weapons and a flag on one shoulder that says Jesus and a flag on the other shoulder that says, <laughs> I hate everybody else. <laughs> if you're not Jesus, I hate you kind of thing. Right. So I think we just need to define what that means. That's good. Justin, what do you think? No, I think that's good. So I, my first thought is yes, that it's both a helpful distinction and a detraction from addressing the issues at hand. But I do think it's important to address uh, how are we going to define nationalism. Yeah. So can I do that? Please. Okay. I would love to hear your definition because I wrote down my own definition okay. as well. I, I tried to stay away. I didn't read anything, anybody. I just took the cum the accumulation of information yeah. and tried to regurgitate it out in my observation. So I, I'd love to hear what you said as far as a definition because I think you're right, Keith. We need to define terms, right? Mm -hmm. Don't just assume everybody's on the same page what a term means. So yep. let's see if we can get right. there. So I got two definitions. One is from a lady named Kristen Dumais. She wrote a book called Jesus and John Wayne, and she defines Christian nationalism as the belief that America is God's chosen nation and must be defended as such. Mm. Uh, my definition of Christian nationalism is conflating the kingdom of God with a kingdom or country on earth today. That's good. That's good. All right, here was, here's my shot at, at national. Now, I, I parsed out Christian and just went for nationalist because I think the Christian part, unfortunately, we probably shouldn't assume that, but around here, we kind of know what we mean by Christian, kind of. We know what we mean by Christian. So here's, here's how I defined 
nationalist. And I define nationalist different from nationalism. Nationalist, a nationalism is the active display of being a nationalist. <laughs> How you like my being clear there? That. I can't do that. So here's what I said a nationalist is. One who asserts a nation's interests as separate from the interests of other nations or other peoples. That's how I came at And, and I, I took that from how I define patriot because I, I, I define a patriot as a person who loves, supports, defends their country, state, city, and home and its interests with devotion, a person who's a defender. That's how I define patriot. And so a nationalist, I distinguish by saying one who asserts their national, city, state, or home's interests are completely separate from others' okay. interests. Yeah, so the distinction would be um, and nationalism you're painting as a negative term, I take it, for well, the most part. Well, I, I, yes, I think so. Yeah. I actually put down negative and positive examples. I think yeah. you can have a positive nationalist, potentially. Here's an exa- Can I give you an example? Yes. yes. All right, here's a positive example of nationalism. The consideration of national security and personal protection practiced for the protection of citizens domestic and abroad during a national emergency. And I gave the example, I put in my notes, September 11th, right? 9-11. That's a moment of positive nationalism in which, hey, we need to, we need to regroup, huddle up, figure out next steps and what to do. Mm. I think that's a positive example of nationalism displayed. Um, the question then com- becomes for me, how long... Must that be displayed right. before it turns unhealthy? Uh, but I think there are positive examples of that, yeah. and I think that's yeah, one. It seemed like you basically, because you can, you can um, from a Christian worldview, you can sort of, uh, you can fight for America and its, um, I guess, its independence, so to speak, and at the same time be fighting for the independence of other places like Canada because you believe as we flourish, they flourish. There's a, there's a way in which we could see, look, if we, if we as a country stand for this and Iran, on the other hand, stands for that, we're standing against Iran for their benefit. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So it's just it, you're not, you're not a, um, a bad guy if you, if you want what is right for America and that happens to stand against something that's going on somewhere else. You can stand against a, a nation state for their benefit. Not right. because you hate them, but right. because you love them. Right. So there is a Distinguished from yeah. the citizens versus the state of whatever that government Yeah, or is. the leadership that's taking them astray or whatever. Yeah. I think that's a good distinction. Yeah. yeah that's important. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. There's a, so here's a, here's a definition straight from um, the, most, the, the best source ever, Wikipedia. Um, it is <laughs> Christian nationalism, primarily Christian nationalists, primarily focus on internal politics, such as passing laws that affect their view of Christianity and its role in political and social life. And the reason I wanted to read that is because there are, in the, so, in the sociology world and in the political science world these days, there are, there are definitions of Christian nationalism that probably would put me in that category. Uh, because I do believe that the Christian worldview is the worldview that's going to lead to maximum human flourishing. There's an exceptionalism to my view of the world in that sense. I believe that Christianity is exceptional. <laughs> and I believe it's exclusive. I believe everybody doesn't go to heaven. 
Um, that's sort of orthodox Christianity. In light of that, I have to believe also that if that's true, it's good for everybody. And if and I do believe that to the degree that our politics or that our international policy or anything else lines up with the wisdom we find in Scripture, the world flourishes. It's what we believe about getting into domains and that kind of thing. I want that leveraged in the political square. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be quiet in the political square. And so um, it's what is really frustrating for me is, first of all, I'm completely against breaking the law. <laughs> I'm against even, I'm really uncomfortable with having a flag on one shoulder that says Jesus and a flag on the other shoulder that has anybody's name. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even want that flag. So it, that's completely wrong. Like Christian nationalism, when it breaks the law, in my mind, is bad, period. Okay, so we got to get that on the table. I'm not, I'm not with the guys who stormed the Capitol. But at the same time, there is a, there's a language and a terminology and a conversation that's happening in the world out there, like in media and other places, and I mean media like ABC, NBC, CBS, where Christian nationalism is almost dismissed outright. Number one, because it's Christian. And we're, especially if it's evangelical. And that's the thing that I would want to push against and go, look, let's, let's define what we mean. Because these questions come from a, from a standpoint of Christian nationalism is bad. If they mean what happened at the Capitol, I'm 100% in agreement with that. I just wanted to clarify some of that. No, that's good. I think what's interesting uh, is where we even see the kingdom of God flourishing most currently historically is not in our country, but in the global south and other countries that maybe there's some overlap Mm -hmm. in governmental philosophy or practice that leads to some manner of religious freedom or economic for something, mm-hmm. some manner of freedom for all religions to flourish because because we do share that worldview that we believe that Christianity is exceptional. It's mm-hmm. exclusive. Yeah. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And because those places are free to practice that, contrasted with others who are free to practice it, we believe because the, the Bible says it's true, Jesus is going to win out. In that. Yeah. So whatever system is practiced nationally, whether it be Brazil, Peru, I don't know, Patagonia, out in the out in the wilderness of Patagonia, or or in even in places where they may not share some of our national philosophy, the kingdom of God is flourishing. So what are those things that overlap that um, that even defy? nationalism Mm -hmm. that may be exceptional and good that are causing the kingdom of God to flourish. Mm. Because that's where this begins to break down for me. I have a tendency as an American to go, here we are exceptional when it comes to freedom, Mm -hmm. freedom of religion. But then I go, why does it feel like the church is sliding backward and other places where they don't have that, they are advancing forward. That defies my logic. I think that's where the nuance to me comes in between the right ways to engage culture and society and politics versus conflating that with American ideals that we still may believe to be good and true and right. And even sometimes we agree that those things line up directly with Scripture and the wisdom from God. But there's a difference between fighting for the wisdom of God and fighting for American ideals worldwide when it comes to how do we see the kingdom of God flourishing. Mm. 
right? And that's, I think, where the nuance has to come in of how we address Christian nationalism within the church of what are you fighting for? Because if it's the kingdom of God, it doesn't always come under America. That's right. Um, like you were talking about. Worldwide, there are places where the kingdom is flourishing and expanding and movements are happening, multiplications happening, and we don't see that here. And so where do we, how do we square those two things with what we believe to be good about freedom and what we see maybe as detrimental to the health of the church mm. by over-focusing on some of those economic freedoms as our highest ideals? So That's a good question. That's a good question. I have more questions than I have answers. So, <laughs> Welcome <laughs> Welcome to the boat, brother. <laughs> Many yeah. questions. Not, not. A lot. I think we're trying to find answers. Um, I, I um, when you, Keith, like you said, when you start putting the uh, uh, the national identity, whatever it happens to be, whether it be whether it's the nation, the president, a political party, next to yeah. Jesus, that begins to take nationalist and blend it in ways that make me very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I start thinking this is this is bad. I'm, I'm going to use the example because unless you've read the book, it's going to sound bad. If you read the book, it's not bad. But Erwin Lutzer wrote a book. It's going on maybe 30 years ago. You guys know who Erwin Lutzer is? He's pastor of Moody Church, Chicago. Um, Lutzer wrote a book called Hitler's Cross, and it's just a way he goes back and and from a reform tradition, looking at how that party co-opted the Lutheran church and, and, and redefined things while keeping the veneer. And, and it's a fantastic book because he he's not drawing on his current American state. He wrote this 30 years ago. He's talking about the status of the church and, and blending too carefully with systems of the world. Mm-hmm. And that book is very prophetic, I feel like, for today. But anytime you start saying Nazi church to present day, man, I know that's inflammatory. So yeah. people listening to this, don't, that's not my intent. It's just mm-hmm. a book written 30 years ago dealing with the the um, tendency to begin to combine and merge yeah. um, worldviews that are not blendable yeah I, I have um, there's a there's a book that's that's been written I, I think it's out I'm pretty sure it's out I've, I've read mu- as much of it as I can read online but it's called taking America back for God and it's by Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry, and these guys are, are professors and they're sociologists. And they what they've tried to do is they've tried to define what nationalism is. They've tried to get a that through surveys and various things. They've tried to identify how big is the problem. These guys they're against nationalism. Best I can tell, I think they're Christians, but I do think they're they're probably mainline Christian denominations. And so they ask six questions, and those six questions. How you answer those six questions either puts you into one of four categories. And so um, what they found is that the, the really bad Christian nationalists, the ones that think, you, you know, things like you shouldn't even be able to, to hold a, a position in Congress if you're not a Christian kind of thing. Those guys are like 20% of the population. 80% of the population would either sort of tolerate that or completely reject it. And so my question is how... How big is the problem of Christian nationalism? Like, are we talking about 5% of the population? And it's like, okay, well, let's don't spend too much time on those guys right. because they really don't have a lot of influence. That's a great question. Because there is a sense in which our media can make 1% of the population feel like a much bigger problem than they really are. And here's why I bring this up. Because everybody in the public square right now has a worldview. There's nobody that's suddenly showing up 
to the public square and these political issues unbiased. That's what our world wants us to believe. And so they'll throw a Christian nationalist in front of somebody like me simply because I believe I'm going to leverage my worldview on behalf of everything that I do. Well, so is the secular person. I don't know what the stats are, but if you were to find a way to do a survey to identify secular nationalists, those people who think that their secular ideas ought to, ought to influence everything. I mean, there are people out there who think you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be able to be in Congress if you have a worldview. Like if you're a Christian, you can't get in here because it's going gonna, it's gonna to pollute your politics. What's the, what's the percentage of secular nationalists that are currently in, in our world and where's the conversation surrounding those guys? Because what they're doing is they're trying to completely boot out all religious affiliation and bring our world into a place where we're completely neutral in the public square. What we're trying to say is that Christians don't want to do that. Right. We're not trying to find an America that's neutral on biblical and ethical and moral issues. Right. We, we want an America that's free but we also want to highlight our distinctives. That's right. We want to say, no, we really believe this is better. Yeah. It would be interesting to find out um, in the concept of a secular nationalist. In my mind, I almost see those people as folks who have no national interest. They, they're willing to give away what we value for the sake of protecting something we don't value sometimes. And I'm going, boy, that, you're talking about incompatible. Well, but, I, but I think they're probably there. They're saying this is America. And I want my America to look like this, which is an exclusive claim contrasted with what they say they hate. So, yeah, I would love to know what percentage. I would love to know if that's possible demographically to figure it well, out. And a lot of those guys would consider themselves cosmopolitan, which means it's essentially world politics. Like we, we want to level the playing field and come into one global community. And that, that sets, itself up, sets itself up against because we're all going to believe the same thing and it's all going right. to be happy and we're going to live together because we believe human beings ultimately are good. And if we can, you know, that whole thing, those folks don't want national boundaries. They think right. boundaries are hateful. Yeah. Like if, if you're going to have a boundary between us and another nation and tell somebody they can't come in unless they do X, Y, Z, well, that's just downright hateful. Right. Ask them to go uh, unlock their front door and just open it for the yeah, night. Just open go to bed. And, yeah, but that, no that's sort of the secular nationalist sure. view of boundaries. Well, there aren't any because, man, if we'll just love on each other enough, the Iranians and, you know, the, the North Koreans, they're all just going to come on over, shake hands, and suddenly act right. Well, that's, we all know that's not true, but right. policy-wise, that's sort of what they advocate for, these folks who I would consider secular nationalists. That's good. Hey, let's take a break. We're going to come back and continue to talk about patriotism and nationalism. Then we've got one more question we want to get to. All right, welcome back. So we're talking about nationalism. We're talking about its incompatibility with Christianity. Because, and I think I do want to state that explicitly. Mm. Nationalism, the way I think I've defined it here, is completely incompatible with Christianity, because the kingdom of God is a real, international, galactic <laughs> reign in which there is one king, and as far as I can tell, as much as I like a representative government, a republic, as much as I would want to fight for that, this side of the eternal kingdom 
as far as I can tell, there's not any representation in that kingdom. And it's a national identity, and it will be the identity at one point in time. So as a Christian, I, those two allegiances, I have trouble blending them really well, cleanly, which is where, for me, that begins to introduce the idea of what is patriotism. Mm-hmm. I find personally that is more compatible with a Christian worldview than a nationalist worldview, even though there are moments where a nationalist identity may be helpful for the preservation of a nation. Patriotism is an idea that is more palatable, I feel like, Mm -hmm. to Christianity than nationalism, depending on how we identify it or define it. I think it's important, like you said, that our highest allegiance as believers has to be to Jesus Christ, to his kingdom, his church, his mission. And that's where things get out of bounds. And I think specifically, like as an elder at Three Rivers, my burden is to address the Christian nationalism within the church uh, first. Not that I don't want to address things outside the church, but I do see it as a problem within the church. The church I grew up at, some of the biggest and loudest singings were on Memorial Day and Veterans Day, right? To me, that's crossing the line when you can sing more passionately God Bless America than you can sing, you know, How Great Thou Art. Um, and there's a passion to one, and there's just a apathy to the other. Um, and so I think, I do think patriotism, a love for and appreciation for where you live, the values of that society, um, is a good thing, can line up underneath being a Christian. Um, and it crosses the boundary when it becomes nationalistic because I think patriotism can lead to nationalism very easily if you're not careful. That's good. But I don't think patriotism in and of itself is a bad thing. Right. No, I think that's a good distinction. I, I actually wrote him. We didn't we didn't go over all of our notes beforehand. We just knew what we were talking about. But I even put down in my notes that I felt like patriotism on a negative side begins to lean into nationalism. But patriotism, I think, we can get pure with it is a healthy and good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a very helpful thing. So um, I, I put a list of uh, some positive examples of being a patriot, and we can jump back and talk about nationalism if we need to, but some examples of being a patriot being paying your taxes, appropriate taxes. And I said appropriate. I put that qualifier in there because I'll stroke a check here in a few weeks again um, to pay more than I, what I feel like is my fair share but that's subjective right that's subjective um civil uh debate i think that's a patriotic activity i think it's civil debate not uncivil debate but civil debate treating each other appropriately even though we disagree finding a middle way between two two ideas that are that's best for everybody like that's politics right it's finding what's best for a city uh serving in the military federal state civil service such as I've had the privilege to serve for the Division of Family and Children's Services for 15 years in our city. That's patriotism. Um, And so those are positive examples of furthering the good of our city, state, federal government, uh, and preserving good things for everybody. That's healthy. Yeah, That's worth um, pledging some manner of loyalty to. Mm -hmm. And I think that's distinct from saying, no, no, this identity alone as a nation, is absolutely um, my identity. And, and another thing I put, a distinction. I called patriotism an adjective and uh, uh, nationalism uh, a noun. Mm. 
So getting nerdy here. Noun speaking to an identity. Adjective speaking to a characteristic of a greater identity. I would say nationalism is a noun. Hmm. I would call patriotism an adjective. Hmm. I think maybe a helpful example, back related to the question about what happened at the Capitol, those people thought they were patriots. They would identify themselves as patriots. That's why I'm storming the Capitol with a flag, because I think it's my patriotic duty to defend the Constitution. But it crosses a line when actually you're violating the Constitution, believing a lie, and breaking the law violently, like where someone died, you, you crossed a line to, you're not a patriot anymore. You are proclaiming some version of nationalism that, to be honest with you, it doesn't even line up with the nationalism you would say outside of that event is what they advocated for. Right. No, that's good. We talked about this in our last podcast, but, um, and I want to say something at the very end. I, I want to, completely affirm what you said about allegiance man that that is the issue to me it's like where it ultimately do you identify as a christian or do you identify as an american and we have to identify as christians period there's that's a that's a short conversation but you know there the the problem with people believe crazy things because there's so much crazy information out there right if we could drop back to the middle 1700s, you got guys going, I'm about to start killing folks because as a Christian, it's the right thing to do. Now, that debate's gone on for probably ever since then. But most people I know would say, yeah, that was the right thing to do. America needed to do that. Blood was shed. Life. Now you fast forward to our present day. You've got people at the Capitol with weapons. They think they're back at the same crossroad. Those of us who like who seem somewhat reasonable are like that's not you're not even close. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it it is it, we have to there is Mitch you mentioned the fact that there's there's I have this allegiance to the kingdom of Christ who is a galactic he's a universal king there's no part of the universe where he's not his rule doesn't um, take over but at the same time we are human beings situated in a place. And our Christianity has a role in that place. So what does my eternal identity mean for me today when it comes to uh, helping, you know, engage in certain social issues, voting, that kind of thing? Um, those two things can't be unmarried for, from each other. And what, what scares me is this notion of privatization, which has happened in our country, where your faith is cool and we, we love the fact that you have a faith, but it's, it's really just for your home and your church. No, it's not. That, that is not the way a worldview works. Nobody works that way. Nobody mm-hmm. has a, that has a really deep-seated belief can, cl- can leave it at home. It has to follow them wherever they go. So it, all of these conversations to me really boil down to, well, what issue are we talking about? Like, okay, I'm at the barrier. Is today the day that we're going to cross the barrier and chart? No. That is not, today is not. Now, I may have 95% of my worldview in common with this guy beside me, but the moment he decides to step over the barrier, I go, you've lost it. Mm-hmm. So it really is issue by issue. So these, these terms where we say Christian nationalism and try to have a conversation, it seems to me that whether it's about race, whether it's about doctrine, it's okay, which, which particular issue are we dealing with right now? Let's deal with that. 
because these great grand ideas are difficult to even encapsulate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can't paint biblic with biblical wisdom. You can't paint in broad strokes. You just can't. It's just not possible. We have to get down into the nuance. What do you mean by that? What does that word mean? And how are we using it in a sentence? Mm-hmm. Like that that matters, right? Completely matters. Ray Ortland Jr., uh, we quoted it <clears throat> excuse me, in a couple of sermons, is that uh, the majority of life is a series of nuanced judgment calls. Mm. And I think exactly what you're saying is just that, right? Every, every conversation we find ourselves in has become a nuanced situation of we, I need to be clear that I understand what you're saying what you exactly? before I give you my opinion, because if I assume something, you're going to take it the wrong way mm-hmm. and think that I'm a loony bird way off in left field. Right. Getting very practical with what happened on January the 6th, how I could see patriotism working itself out in that situation would be recognizing. I, I, yesterday was the, I don't know, can't do the math, January 25, 1787's uh, Shays Rebellion. Hmm. Um, 4,000 Massachusetts uh, rebelled. They felt like the government wasn't hearing them anymore, so they rebelled, and it was quelled, the federal government. Crushed it. Thomas Jefferson stated, I quoted, I talked about this la- uh, last podcast, that the uh, that uh, the blood of rebellion, the blood of uh, of, of patriots, uh, is the manure for the soil of freedom. And I, I wholeheartedly disagree with that because what I would say is our our system of government is now at a place, or should once founded, be at a place where we use that system of government to. Mm-hmm no longer have to spill blood. We should be working toward more peace because we have systems for addressing those things. And I think the failure of a decent civics class, state history classes, a class on the Constitution and the amendments and understanding some of these issues help people to walk up there and appropriately, peacefully gather and make your voice heard because there's no doubt. And we, there's no doubt there's voter fraud. There's no doubt those things happened. To the extent that it could change the election, it was pretty clear that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. But there's a system of making change. We have a government established where we can actually make a difference. Now, it's going to require some work. My single vote alone is not going to make a difference. But if I really care, by God, I'll get enough people together and we can make a difference. That may take me the rest of my life. I think William Wilberforce is a great example of that. A man gave his entire life to see the abolition of slavery. That was his whole thrust of his whole existence. And on his deathbed, his last day, Parliament abolished slavery in the British Empire. But it took him his entire life. And I would say a patriot would say, I refuse to shed American blood for this cause, but I will give my life to it. And it may take my entire life to see voter identification or whatever the issue may need to be, but I will give my life peacefully for that. And if that's my one issue, so be it. But we have a system of government that allows for that, of which I would say is an exceptional component to our government. And so that, to me, is, that would be patriotic. I would stand against all the forces of the majority and say, no, this is a hill I'm willing to give my life for, figuratively. Mm-hmm. I don't need to shed blood to do this, but I'll make this my one issue. And if it bankrupts me, it bankrupts me. If nobody listens to me, they don't listen to me. But I will die with this one issue. Mm-hmm. When you have that kind of conviction, I call that patriotic. That's good. Makes a difference. Okay, our last question. 
What responsibility do pastors and other Christian leaders have to calm down the extremist rhetoric we hear and read so much these days? I asked because yesterday I read a quote from a woman who said she was part of a crowd that invaded the Capitol because her pastor told her he had a burning bush dream where God told him she should be part of the demonstration. I find it interesting that he had a dream from God about her. been different if he said, no, God told me. Yeah. He said, hey, you go. Don't make me go. And so she didn't have that dream. So. She didn't have that dream. And, and, and I've heard multiple stories. I can't verify any of that. I didn't read that article, but I have read various uh, accounts of people saying they had dreams, God told them. And I'm going, wow, God told Okay, that's interesting, because that's kind of the ace in the hole, right? God mm-hmm. told me not to give, <laughs> so I'm not giving. Well, his word says something different, right? So what is the responsibility of Christian leaders and pastors? And I think this is a great question for us. And so uh, I'll let you guys go first. Yep. It's hard not to deal with the part of that, com- part of that question that is like, can, can a pastor have a dream for me from God to, like, it's— I can't help but not deal with that. That's really not the essence of the question. Um, But it's certainly a big part of it, right? It's a huge part of the question. And if we're going to do theology in the dirt, we almost need to have a podcast dealing with that particular issue. I've got friends I love dearly who would go, yep, that's right. People have told me that kind of thing, and it's worked out. Um, So I personally um, would would really be skeptical if, if, uh, Jolly, you, you said, man, I had a dream last night. Thompson that said you need to get on an airplane and go to wherever. I'd be like, okay, I'll consider that. Right. Um, anyway, yeah, that's yeah. neither here nor there. It, you might agree with it if you've been considering going that's to right. that place. Like you might, might go, hey, f- God's affirming a call in my life. But if it's out of the blue, like, hey, go go participate on trying to break into the Capitol, yeah. that doesn't line up with anything else, hopefully, that's going on in your heart yeah. from the Lord. Well, and to be fair, it does. she did say that he told me to go be a part of the demonstration not go be right. a part of the onslaught of the capital right so that to that pastor's credit um whoever he or she is for all that for that matter um he he did say that so it should be distinguished but I, i'll you can answer the question about how pastors can uh i'll jump in there um i think it, we have an immense responsibility um on a high level to call people to truth uh, and I think it's dealing with what's inside the church first and foremost before we deal with what's outside the church uh, because I think we have to call ourselves to repentance before we can address an issue in the culture. Um, and so I do think it's an issue that we have to address mostly because of what we saw on display because of this bad rhetoric, the Jesus saves signs next to the you know, other signs with other people's names on them. You know, you got Jesus 2020 and Trump 2020 so let's storm the Capitol. That's got, I mean, that's got to be addressed within the church because it's a co-opting of our faith with other things. Um, but I think we have to address that. It's a discipleship issue. I mean, it reveals, even the, the example with the pastor, it's an issue of are you in the Word? Do you know the Word? Are you walking with the Lord? Are you abiding in Him? Um, because if you're not, then somebody can say something off the wall like that, and you go, oh, okay, I'm, I'm on with that. Mm-hmm. But right. if you're in the Word and you're abiding with Christ and somebody says, hey, hey, Keith, I had a dream. And I think that what you need to do with your life is 
advocate for something that's contrary to everything else that you believe, then hopefully you would go, well, that doesn't line up with anything else that mm-hmm. I read in the Word. So I think that's our responsibility as pastors and church leaders is to address that inside the church of abide in Christ, grow in Him, seek the truth. That's good. I, uh, I, I would say over the past few weeks I've had to really search my own soul, and there's a fair amount of repentance personally, internally, in that um, somehow, some way, you begin to fancy that maybe you have a voice with other people and you should use it for that purpose. And maybe you do, maybe you don't. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. But what I've come to realize is it's not my task from God to move the consciences of other people and other fellowships. Mm. Not my job. Mm. Um, is there a place for public correction of bad theology on the part of any spiritual leader? Probably. But I think that's unique to the day of information being lightning quick. Um, back in the day, that, that was a little, um, took a little more time to do that appropriately. So what I've had to come to the conclusion for myself personally and for our church is God has given us a people. Mm. And if they're not of that people, I'm not. Hebrews 13, right? I'm not responsible for them. And Mm. they are not accountable to me or any of our elders or any of our leaders. And so what God's given, he's given us a people. And so for that, then, for me, focus on writing and preaching and teaching those people God's given under your charge. Whether it be as a discipler to two or three or one person, or a leader, a small group leader, or a ministry director, a volunteer, or whatever. Focus on the people God has given you in discipling. Um, preach the Bible stem to stern. All of it. Not hobby horse passages, not topically even. I mean expositionally deal with the passage in such a manner that the people under your charge can go mimic what you did and get the same conclusions. Um, meta-narrative. The kingdom of God start with the meta-narrative. Um, and and then, then the, the kingdom of God. And, and, and so I would say our responsibility is it's those things. And, and I would say, um, I think, for a fellowship, just to speak, Proudly, we have very little problem with that. I'm proud of our people and the way they have engaged or shown wisdom to not engage. Um, so kudos to this little fellowship for, I think, handling themselves pretty well in the middle of some pretty chaotic times. And so I've been very thankful for that. So when I've stepped away from feeling like I need to correct other sheep not in this pasture, life has been a lot simpler mm-hmm. and a little, a little freer. So I think we have responsibility, but not over, not over everyone. Yeah, responsibility has to come with some authority. So if, if there's a guy out there that's saying stuff that I disagree with, I, I can't be responsible for him because I don't have any authority over. Right. That's why the church is so the local church is so important. There is an authority structure in the local church. That's right. There's a very clear outline of, of who I'm accountable to those people can be responsible for me because they've got some measure of authority in my life. Those folks out there everywhere, I, I really can't do anything about it. I, I do think because of the way um, the way our communication works these days, like even the, even when you, when you guys are preaching to us, it's really going out to anybody who wants to listen. So it's it not just coming to us. So there are people out there listening to you now 
who you have no authority over. And depending on what perspective they're coming from, they're going to try to correct you. Well, you don't need, you're not and even they in, do. That's right. You're not even in our church. But, you know, I appreciate the, the dialogue. Right. So there's no way to sort of, we're going to engage people outside of our church. But when it comes to a response, the, the question was specifically pastors having a responsibility. I agree with you. I don't think we necessarily have a responsibility um, to deal with those people. I, I'm not opposed to when we're talking to our folks, helping them think through, like, I think that person is, is off base um, in the way they're viewing the world because of this and this and this. But yeah. yeah, I remember sitting in class in graduate school with guys who were training to get their degree in theology, biblical languages, and when asked uh, how many, how, how often have you read through your Bible? I was shocked at the great percentage who'd never read it through once. Hmm. And, and I began to even then. When, uh, see, I think I was 27 when I first enrolled to start my master's work. I remember sitting in that class going, counting up the times I had already been through because I had a person who taught me I need to, and I was just stupid enough to believe, well, you should read your Bible. So I started reading my Bible and started reading it through and, 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 and then putting two and two together and seeing the biblical illiteracy is happening because the leaders haven't even read it through. Mm. And they're making statements about God that are based upon cultural statements or niceties or some platitude from the pulpit, and people regurgitate it. So what you have is a Protestant Pope-ish kind of person, and people just regurgitate what they hear, true or not, because mm-hmm. they assume you got a degree, and you have a degree, you must know what you're talking about, when in fact they've never even read it through once. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, we are sowing, we have we're reaping what we have sown in biblical illiteracy from the top down, bottom up, side over, whichever direction you want, want to put that. And, and so, and so for me, our task is to know our Bibles, know God, teach his word, do it in such a way that people can go, I need, I'm going to do what you did to try to get that same conclusion. Yeah. And that's, I think Justin, you said it's a discipleship issue. I think that's something Keith said, made me think um, talking to people about, engaging with someone else outside the church, I think one of our greatest things we can do as disciple makers is people we do have conversations with is help equip them to go and speak truth in their domain. So wherever they find themselves working, they're going to be around people that are not in the church. So kind of to your point, how, how do we, or maybe our responsibility includes teaching them to how to do that in a, um, or the right word, winsome, like good, healthy way. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, because as a as a non pastor of our church, I'm I'm engaging in domains where I really don't have a spiritual authority over these people's lives. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a place for me out there mm. to have a conversation. So as a as a believer and as a person who's supposed to take the glory of God throughout the earth, I am going to have conversations with people where I'm trying to influence them and in a winsome way, help them see that this is right and true and just. It's going to lead to human flourishing. Oh, by the way, you've got a condition that you may not, you may not um, acknowledge, but you're dead apart from Christ, destined for mm-hmm. this awful thing. So I'm constantly trying to leverage um, what the Lord has taught me in concert with the Holy Spirit to help people understand. And at the end of the day, I can't. They just have to sort of do whatever they're going to do. That's good. good. Well, 
let's take a last word. Any final thoughts, Keith, and then Justin, and then we'll we'll close out our time. Final thoughts. Final thought is balance. So every one of us engage in conversations. We're continually, whether we know it or not, framing our conversation to help um, trying to, if I'm communicating with you, I've got an idea I want you to get into your head. I've got to use words to do that. But I think we should all be really, really careful when we're speaking with somebody and we're, we're not, I'm not trying to help you understand my position as much as I am trying to manipulate you to believe what I believe. And the difference in manipulation and just communication is manipulation is I'm trying to take you somewhere and I'm hiding certain things and bringing in other things because I want you to get there, whether you want to get there or not. Whereas I think a biblical view of communication would be, no, I'm going to, if there's a pertinent idea, or if there's a part of the story that I think is pertinent, I need to share all of that with you and let the evidence be compelling. As opposed to what, what just is, seems so damaging to me is when a, a believer or anybody else for that matter there's this, there's this, people can't see me, I'm, I'm spreading out my hands. There's this bit of information that deals with this issue. And if I only bring to you the, the side on the right side or the left side that's 10% of the story, that's unreasonable to me. Mm-hmm. I would love to see people be more balanced. Present both sides of the story when you're telling the narrative and then let people decide on their own. You can say what you believe, but... What's poisonous is when you leave out 90% of the detail because I'm afraid that detail is going to mess up what I'm trying to convince you of. Mm. So be balanced. Go back and look at your feeds and your comments and in your head, go through your conversations. Have I been balanced and reasonable dealing with any of these issues? Mm. That's my call to all of us, especially me. That's good. Love it. That is good. Yeah. Justin. I don't know how to follow that up, but no, my, uh, my last thought amen. would be, that's right. Amen. And I think it's imperative that we be people who know the word mm. and we let the word of God influence every nuanced area of our life. And it's hard work. Both of y'all have said that today and before it, it's not easy to work this out, but it's important to work it out. It's good. Well, that's going to do it for us today. It looks like it's been a good conversation, and I'm excited for people to listen and engage with us. So thank you, Keith. Thank you, Justin. We thank you guys for listening. If you have questions you'd like to ask, please send them to theologyinthedirt at gmail.com. And we would absolutely be tickled pink if you would rate the podcast and share Theology in the Dirt. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Have a great day. Out.